Good morning, and welcome to the house of the Lord. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Dr. James Saxon. I'm one of the pastors here on the staff of the church, and I've been hearing good things about the early service, though I'm not able to get over here much because of other responsibilities, but it's good to see all of you this morning. And what I'd like to ask you to do is open your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to read a single verse, and then I'd like to ask you to keep your Bibles handy because we're going to do some turning in the Bibles this morning uh, during the uh, course of, of my remarks and what we'll be looking at. 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 15. Now, part of what I do here at the Church of the Apostles is I head up the evangelism ministry. So evangelistic-minded people like myself are always looking for texts that address the topic of evangelism, especially to the layperson. So this text this morning is one of the better texts in the New Testament that is addressed to the laity of the church in terms of uh, how to share your faith. So let's look at this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And the text is up here on the screen if you want to look at that. 1 Peter chapter 3.15 reads as follows. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Since it's a single verse, let's read it again. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Shall we pray? Lord, make your intent behind this verse clear to us today and give us some help on how we can align our lives with the charge that you've given us in this verse. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this is a text that you could preach a month of sermons on, <clears throat> and it starts out um, with a challenge to make sure that every aspect of your life is under the Lordship of Christ. Sanctify means to set apart, and the emphasis in the first part of the verse is to set apart Christ in your hearts, on the throne of your heart, and let everything uh, be underneath His authority and His presence in your life. But then the text goes on to say that we should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account within us. Now, what I've found is that people who sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts, no matter whoever they're around, they tend to create a certain amount of intrigue by the way they live their lives. And that prompts people, prompts a certain curiosity in people to ask um, your life is a little bit different. You don't laugh at the same jokes that other people laugh at. You seem to be much more fastidious about uh, ethics and morals and those kinds of things. What is it happening inside of you? And so when a person's life is sanctified under the lordship of Christ, it tends to create intrigue in those around them. And the text tells us what we're supposed to do when someone comes to us and says... Um, what is it about you that makes you different? It says we're, we should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that's in us. Now, the word defense is a word that means, from the word we get the word apologetics, it means like in a court of law to be able to defend 
or to give evidence for why you are the way that you are. And it says that we're always to be ready to be able to do this. And another way to put the verse is, or another way to, use, to translate the word defense is, to make the case. Always be ready to make the case for the Lordship of Christ in your life when someone asks you. So let's kind of follow this text this morning, and let me ask you this question. Suppose you're sitting in Starbucks with someone who's a good friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and they notice about you that you're a religious person of faith, and they say to you, they ask you this question, why are you a Christian? When you tell them you're a person of faith and you're a Christian, and they say to you, why are you a Christian? How do you think you'd answer that question? Why are you a Christian? Well, surveys tell us that people typically answer that question with answers like the following. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I just grew up going to a Christian church, and I internalized my faith. Or others will say something like, I had an experience with God, and it confirmed with me that God is real, and it caused me to turn my life closer to the Lord. Or others can say, when I became a Christian or became a person of faith, my life changed and all the changes that it made were better. It made my life better. Now, all of those answers have this in common. They're experience-based answers. And the people that do these surveys tell us that people of other faiths, like Mormonism, answer the exact same way. So that in our culture, in our age of skepticism, when we give experience-based answers only in answer to the question of why we're a Christian, that, that goes some distance, but it'll only take you so far. The better answer goes something like this when it comes to making a defense. I am a person of faith and I believe in Christianity because based upon the evidence, it appears to me to be the faith that is the true faith. And when I've aligned my life with the truth of, the f truth of this faith, it's only made my life better and elevated the quality of my life. Now notice the difference between that answer and the first three answers I gave you. The first three answers, like I said, tend to be experience-based. And, and in this age of skepticism, people will look at your experience and say, yeah, I've heard that from a lot of different people, other different faiths. So Again, it'll, it'll, it'll push the needle along, it'll move the needle, but it only gets you so far. But when you give an answer that's based upon truth, that's confirmed and verified by your experience, it'll go further. Now, if you look up here, I'll illustrate what I'm trying to say. If you look at the person on the left, what you see is a person on the left with the idea of experience. They answer why I'm a Christian based upon experience. Now, experience will lead you to the truth. It can lead you to the truth, but the experience can also lead you to error. It can also lead you to error. If you move to the person on the right who bases their hope in the gospel on evidence, notice that evidence and truth, evidence almost always leads you to the truth, and unless you have incomplete evidence, it rarely ever leads you into error. So when your hope in the Lord is based upon evidence and truth, verified by your experience, now you're giving a much more complete answer.
And in our world of skepticism, we need to give as thorough of an answer as we can if anybody is going to actually listen to us. So answers based upon experience can lead you to the truth and often does, but it can also lead you to error. Answers or defending the faith based upon evidence and truth most or evidence most often leads you to the truth, rarely ever leads you toward error. So the best answer that I think we can give is the answer of, uh, an answer of truthfulness and an answer that is confirmed by our experience. So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is how do we become defenders of the faith? How do we become case makers in a way that gives a thorough answer to the world in which we live? Now, what I'm going to do is, um, first of all, if you can kill, just take the slide off the screen and let me talk to you for just a minute, first of all, about how to make, how to become a case maker. Let me introduce you to what I would call legal terminology. And legal terminology is, you had it on, I'm sorry. Legal terminology goes something like this. When events happen that are have the appearance of being a criminal event, or there's, or there's wrongdoing implied, an event is then brought to trial. And when an event is brought to trial to determine whether those that are involved actually did something wrong, evidence is presented. Now, in a court of law, there's usually two types of evidence. There's what's called direct evidence, which is eyewitness testimony. And then there's indirect evidence, which is everything else or testimony that's circumstantial uh, by nature. So you have two types of evidence that's presented. Eyewitness testimony, which is direct evidence. Then you have indirect evidence, which is circumstantial. Now, when cases are presented before courts of law and they're not resolved, they're called closed cases. And if many years go by, all the actors involved in the case, if they pass away and they're, they're, they're removed from the scene, then you can't access anybody that was involved in the crime. And so what you have is what's called a closed case. All right, what happens then is all the evidence for that closed case, though it never was brought to resolution, is put in like a two-inch binder, and this is called the case book. And if they ever reopen that case, what they do is go back and look at all the evidence that's found in the case book and determine if it's worth reopening or not in case some new evidence has emerged, and they go from there. Now, let's parallel this to Christianity for just a minute. All right, let's look at Christianity, and let's put Christianity on trial, and let's make a case for it. All right, first of all, Christianity involves a series of events that revolved around the life of a person named Jesus, who was God, and he became man. And his life um, contained a series of events that are plowed into history, the difference between Christianity and other religions is that we're kind of forced to accept other religions, if you embrace them, based upon the teachings and the maxims and the sayings of the leader or whoever founded the religion. But there's very little historical evidence to back up those claims that the founders of other major religions actually make. When it comes to Christianity, there's an ocean of difference between them. Because Christianity is plowed into history, there are numerous events that happened in the normal course of human history that gives us the opportunity to determine whether those events can be verified through evidence, which places Christianity in its own unique category. Now, 
Because Christianity, all those involved in the life of Christ at the time, 2,000 years ago, have passed from the scene, Christianity is what we call a closed case. So what we have is then a case book that's called the Bible that contains all the evidences of the witnesses of his life. Are you following what I'm saying? So we have a case book called the Bible. And this case book contains the evidence of those that were eyewitnesses and those that were not. So if we're going to open the case of Christianity and look at it, then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the case book and see what type of evidence it actually contains. So let's do this this morning, and this is about all we have time for. Uh, Let's take a look at the writers of the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament are those who were witnesses during the time of Christ. Now, follow along with me as I show you what type of evidence the case book of the Bible gives us for Christianity. Now, remember, there's two types of evidence. There's direct evidence or eyewitness evidence, and then there's indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence. So let's see what type of evidence the case book for the closed case of Christianity actually contains. All right, let's start with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The author was a member of the 12 apostles of Jesus. He was a tax gatherer, and he was selected, controversially probably, to be a member of Jesus' inner circle of 12. And he gives to us the first Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew is written to Jews, and it contains extensive Old Testament quotations trying to prove that Jesus was the Old Testament, the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. And it quotes the Old Testament extensively to do that. The second book, the book of Mark, uh, Mark was a, a figure in the New Testament that we find mostly in the book of Acts. And Mark wrote the second gospel, and church tradition confirms to us that Mark was the writer. But what church tradition also confirms to us is that Mark was writing down the, the events in Jesus' life as seen through the eyes of Peter. In other words, Mark was the amanuensis, if you want a technical word, or the scribe for Peter. So though Mark was not an eyewitness necessarily to the life and ministry of the Lord, His gospel centers around the eyewitness account through the eyes of Peter. The third author we find in the gospels is the gospel of Luke. And Luke, as we know, was a doctor. He might have been the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. He was a traveling companion of Paul, and he spent a lot of time with Paul on the second missionary journey. And what I want to ask you to do is turn with me to the gospel of Luke, to the very first chapter, to the first few verses. Luke was not an eyewitness to the life and ministry of the Lord in the same way that the 12 apostles were, but I want you to understand through the first few verses of the gospel of Luke where Luke got his information. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just read along with me as I uh, read these words. It says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us." Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word who have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Now, as you read those words... And they're, they're, this, these, the, the, the Greek that Luke uses in his gospel in the book of Acts is very refined. This was an educated man. 
And as you, look, as you just look at those first four verses, you can see that this man was very meticulous about his documentation process. And what he was also accounting or writing down in his account was the account of eyewitnesses who beheld the word. So though Luke was not an eyewitness, he trafficked with those who were and investigated them carefully, and then he wrote them down and passed them on to us. Then we come to the gospel with the writer of John. What an interesting character. John tends to be kind of overshadowed by the apostle Paul, but in my estimation, Paul and John are the two towering intellects that God worked through to record for us much of the New Testament. John was probably a teenager when he was called to be one of the 12. And that's why he lived the longest, because he was, he was the youngest when he was called. And John is described, he describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, John was the disciple who was leaning upon the breast of Jesus when Jesus disclosed, made that painful disclosure that one of his own 12 was going to betray him. So John has a view of Jesus that really I don't see in the other uh, New Testament writers. John saw the life of Jesus and the heart of Jesus in ways the other authors didn't. John is the only New Testament author who gave us a gospel, three epistles, and wrote the only prophetic book in the New Testament. All three categories of literature in the New Testament, John is involved in all of them. And this man gives to us what's called the supplemental gospel who focuses not on the work of Christ, but the person of Christ. You can bet your bottom dollar John was an eyewitness. Where was he when Jesus died on the cross? Standing at the foot of the cross. And it was John to whom the Lord Jesus bequeathed his mother. Well, now that Jesus was dying and going to ascend into heaven, his mother needed a place to go. And so he asked John to assume that responsibility. John and Jesus were just like this. And we have one gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation from this eyewitness author. Next, we come to the other towering intellect in the New Testament, and that's the apostle Paul. Born in a city of, named Tarsus, which was in southwest Turkey, I believe it was, southeast Turkey. This man was very well educated, sat under the great rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and was a man of zeal. That meant that he had energy. And when Christianity burst onto the scene because he was a very zealous um, Pharisee and Judaizer, he began to persecute the church. Uh, he didn't just blow Christians off or ignore them. He began to persecute them and actually track them down and try to throw them into prison. And he was on his way to Damascus to do just that when the risen Lord Jesus interrupted him, appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who out there, Lord? And Jesus said, rise and I'll show you what you must do. Arise, he did. And, and then he went about his ministry under God's calling and was the first part of the first missionary team that spread the gospel all throughout the Mediterranean basin. Paul wrote 13 New Testament books. And he was an eyewitness to the risen Lord. Then after Paul, we have James, who according to church tradition was a brother of the Lord. The brother of John was put to the sword in the book of Acts, but James was the brother of the Lord, which obviously made him an eyewitness. And then we have Peter, which we've already spoke about. Peter wrote two New Testament epistles, and Peter was the spokesman for the 12 apostles and certainly was an eyewitness to the Lord. 
And then you have Jude, and we're told in the book of Jude that Jude was the brother of James, and if James was the Lord's half-brother, then Jude was probably the brother of the Lord too, which makes Jude an eyewitness. And then we come to the epistle of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote this book. It's an amazing book. It has an eloquence to it that is unlike any other book in the New Testament. Whoever wrote that book, and the, and the great church father Origen says, only God knows who wrote it, and I tend to agree with that, but I like Martin Luther's theory that um, Apollos wrote it, who was a man deep in the scriptures and also a man who was described as very eloquent, which are the two best words to describe the epistle of Hebrews. Now, if you'll turn with me to the epistle of Hebrews, I'll show you something very interesting about where the, whoever wrote the epistle of Hebrews, where he got his basic information. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. The writer of this epistle was not an eyewitness to the Lord, but this is what he said. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So Apollos was a companion of eyewitnesses to the Lord. And even though he himself was not an eyewitness, he was the next generation who had heard from them. And then it says in verse 4 that God bore witness to those first generation of believers through signs and wonders and so forth. So the epistle of Hebrews heard the accounts of eyewitnesses. Now, as you look, we have nine New Testament authors. Remember we said a minute ago that direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. That's, that's where we put most of our weight in a court of law. Now, look at your authors here of the New Testament. Almost all of these are eyewitnesses or were companions of the eyewitnesses. So, what you find in the New Testament or in the New Testament or the case book for Christianity is a trove of direct eyewitness testimony. Now, the next time you talk to a skeptic, talk in these terms and just ask them for their opinion. Just see what they think. Now, these folks made the case for Christianity. They made it. And they made it as eyewitnesses. So because of the strength of eyewitness testimony, we have to put a huge amount of weight upon what they said. Now, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's look at this from a second angle. And then we'll draw maybe a couple of conclusions about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, a group of very whimsical, immature, impetuous type believers, so it seems. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we have Paul making the case for the resurrection of the Lord based upon evidence. And so, the, as we said a minute ago, the life of Christ involved a series of events, but the, the, the primary event in the life of Christ that proves who he was and proves he was the Messiah is the resurrection. Now, Paul addresses the evidence for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Just follow along with me as we start in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you were also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared according to the Scriptures. Let's, let's just stop there for a second. Now, here is, I believe, one of the plainest explanations of the gospel you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. And the heart of the gospel is Christ who suffered, died, buried, and was resurrected. All of that's mentioned. And then notice that he says that all of this happened according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures was he talking about? The Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward to these events happening in the life of Christ, and then they transpired. Okay, in the life of Christ. Now look in verse 6 what he says, how we know that Jesus, all these things happen to Jesus. Verse 5. It says, or verse, yeah, verse 5. It says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Now notice that when he appeared at this point, it was the risen Lord. This is after the resurrection. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And then look at verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren simultaneously at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am fit to be called, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace in me did not prove toward vain. Then he goes down to verse 12 after he lays out the event in the life of Christ, the eyewitness testimony to this event, and then he poses this question to the immature Corinthian church in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached, how has he been, that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? What? The fact that Jesus suffered, died, rose from the dead, that's well known at this time. It's confirmed by over 515 witnesses, and some of these Corinthians are saying it never happened. And Paul is saying, in spite of the witness, you're saying this didn't happen? And then listen to what he says after that. Verse 13, he makes this logical, rational appeal. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ had been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain also. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom you're saying He didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep also in Christ have perished. If we only have hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, what's Paul saying here in this passage? He's writing to an immature church, and he starts with the core elements of the gospel. Christ was died, buried, and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament predicted this was going to happen. It was no surprise. It's not only in the New Testament, it's found in the Old. Then in verses 5 through 8, he says, what evidence do we have that this occurred? And he refers to eyewitness, direct evidence, testimony, and he lists out over 515 people, 500 simultaneously, who saw the risen Lord. 
So this is as strong of evidence as you could possibly have. And remember, we're back in the New Testament times. We don't have cell phone videos. We don't have DNA. We don't have fingerprints. All you've got is eyewitness testimony or circumstantial testimony, indirect testimony. And here you've got 500 eyewitnesses or more that he's referring to. And then he goes on to say this. Listen, if you start mucking around, monkeying around with the central core of the gospel, the resurrection, here's what happens. If you deny the resurrection of the dead, then you're saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Our preaching is in vain. We're false apostles, false prophets. Your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Those who've died in Christ have perished. They're not in heaven. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't feel good about that. And if all we are is hoping in this fantasy, which you're saying didn't exist, we're all of, most, we're of all people are most to be pitied. So how does Paul make the argument? He speaks of the event documents it by evidence, and then shows the logical implications of it. So look up here, let me show you this. What you see, this is an um, uh, archway. And archways are built with stones on both sides. And notice that it's curved. And the top stone is called a keystone. And the keystone is carved up in a certain way that it fits in between the top two stones next to it and holds all the other stones in place. If you pull that keystone out, what happens to the archway? Collapses. And what he's saying is that the resurrection is the keystone to the gospel. And we've got documentable evidence and plenty of it that that happened, that that event happened. Eyewitness testimony. So Paul here is arguing from the standpoint of evidence. Now, Remember we said a minute ago, the text we read says, be ready to make the case. Be ready to present your reason for the hope that's within you. Now, here's how this kind of works as far as we're all concerned. Christ was himself a case maker. When, he, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and said, hey, are, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Jesus sent back John's disciples to John and said, just tell John what you see. The dead are raised. The blind can see. The lepers are cleansed. Just point him to that evidence and let it on the Messiah. So Jesus was a case maker, and, and there's a lot you can say about that. Then we had the commission case makers, which are the 12 apostles. And these guys went out and made the case for the risen Lord. Then nine of those became canonical case makers in the New Testament, and then Continuing through history, we have the continuing or sustaining case makers, and now we have the contemporary case makers. And you know who that is? That's me, and that's you. We are the contemporary case makers. Now, when we're asked to make a defense for the hope that's within us, again, if we, if we reply with a, an experiential answer, that'll have some impact. I was at a gathering of my fraternity brothers in Florida last two days. And my fraternity brothers, when I was in the fraternity, were some of the most godless people that I knew, and I was among them. I was only among them. I was kind of a, an apostle among them, okay? I sort of led the way, and the party didn't start till I got there, kind of a thing. And this group of fraternity brothers meets every year, and I was converted my sophomore year in college. And, and so, Anyway, we met this weekend, and one of my fraternity brothers who kind of pulls this group together, 
he spread the word among us on Saturday night that we were going to go back to this condominium down on Gulf Shores, Destin area, and he was going to share his testimony. So I immediately kind of tensed up thinking, well, this is going to be interesting. So we, he gets everybody together and we're sitting in this condominium and he pulls out his guitar, he's taking guitar lessons and he serenades us with a couple of these songs and it was kind of sad, but it was okay. And so <laughs> anyway, anyway, then he says, okay, now I want everybody to listen, I want everybody to listen. And he tells a story and he tells a story of how he was in a car accident with his two kids and a truck full of logs T-boned the car he was driving in Decatur, Alabama Uh, when the brakes failed and it sent the car spinning and over a ditch and he had a son and a daughter in the back seat and the son was conscious after the accident but the daughter was curled up in a fetal position in the back seat of the car and um, so he got out of the car and was trying to open it and he couldn't get the car door open because it was smashed and he said after a few minutes of yanking at the door he looked up and this person in white was standing next to him it was a female And the person said, let me try it. And she reached over and just opened the door and it came right open. And then she reached into, this lady reached into the backseat of the car and just touched Lindsay, his daughter. She woke up just like that. And then she vanished. She just wasn't there anymore. And so he told that story to my godless attorney brothers and me that some are not godless now, some of them are Christians. And he said, I just want you all to know that because of this experience, I prayed to God that if he would spare my daughter whose eyes were knocked cross-eyed and they weren't, they weren't sure that she was ever going to be able to see clearly again. If you will heal my daughter, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And he did, and he said, I want you all to know that I'm a believer. I've received the gift of salvation. And there was a Jewish brother sitting there who heard this, And he kind of, in a humble way, made his case for Christianity. And then there were several of us who chimed in. And I said, look, you you know my story. You were eyewitnesses to my story. You saw when during our sophomore, junior year, what happened to me and how God just came along, yanked me up and said, okay, Saxon, you've been doing things your way. Now we're going to do things my way. You're coming over to my side. And I was the most reluctant convert next to C.S. Lewis that ever existed. And so they know that I then became an ordained minister, started a church in Florida and serving a megachurch in Atlanta. They know all that information. So we presented all of this information to them. And then what we said was this, if you want to talk about this, let us know. We're not going to push this at you. We don't come to these things because you're our evangelism project. We come because we care about you and you're our brothers. And if you have questions, let us know. But we want you, we want you to all be able to feel the idea of peacefulness in terms of your relationship with God. Now, that was an experiential case. We made an experiential case. We didn't have time to make an evidential case. But the point I want you to see today is simply this. When you can present the gospel based upon evidence, and what we've done today is we hardly even scratch the surface of all the evidence that you can point to to validate Christianity. But when you can just talk about it, even in the simplest of terms, and support with evidence the claims of Christ, and then validate it with your experience of what God has done for you, you're making a powerful, compelling case for the gospel. A compelling case. Now, let me just show you this before I go. This is a book written about 10 years ago 
It's written by an atheist. This is called A Manual for Creating Atheists. This man, as you would maybe suspect, is a college professor. Any, no big surprise there, right? He's a college professor, and this is a manual of how to use the Socratic approach to talk people out of their faith. Well, if we're sitting around not willing to put the investment into learning the evidence and being able to present our case compellingly, just know the enemy's very busy. And the group that has, that has been hit with the atheist ambush are our college kids because of the predominance of unbelief in our universities. They're busy, and we can't afford to be any less. Now, what I want to recommend to you is this. If you want to build upon this in some way in your life, and you want to learn how to do this a little bit better, there's tons of books that are written now through the eyes of detectives, lawyers, who are making the case for Christianity in a very effective way. You can get those books and read them. And this summer, we're going to be doing a training called Becoming a Casemaker. It'll be taught on Sunday morning, which is of no interest to you because it's taught during Sunday school and you come to the early service. But it's going to be taught on Wednesday night. So those of you that come to the early service, you come on Wednesday night. And we're going to use a little video presentation by a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, who was a homicide detective. He was, in, he was a, an atheist detective. Someone came to him and said, use the same homicide detective investigative techniques on Christianity and tell me what you think. Well, he studied the case book, the Bible, and he's a believer. And he's out defending the faith. If you want to learn how to do this, here's an opportunity to help you with this. But we've got to move beyond experience. We've got to balance it. Experience when it verifies the evidence. Now, that's a case in this age of skepticism that is compelling and can make a difference. I invite you, in whatever way you've got time to do it, to join me and everyone else here to learn how to be a more effective casemaker and give an answer. Always be ready to give an answer. Make a defense. Make the case for the hope that is in you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came down upon the earth and your life history is intertwined into so much human activity, so much history that we have very little difficulty, according to your records, verifying that you did set foot upon the earth. You did live, you died, you were crucified, you died, you rose from the dead. And when you rose from the dead, Lord, that event, which is you stayed around for 40 days to make sure that enough people had seen you to verify it through eyewitness testimony, that confirms that you were not only a man, but that you were more than a man, that you were God. And the implications of that are dramatic, especially in this age of skepticism. God, help us. Help us clear our, our schedules and our busy calendars enough that we can be thoughtful about why it is that we believe what we believe. And given the opportunity, like we did in Destin Friday night, bore witness to many who still need the Lord. Well, the opportunities are all around us. You are at work in very, very active ways. 
And we tend to think about all the bad stuff going on and think the world's going to hell in the handbasket. That's absolutely, in one sense, true. In another sense, it's not true at all. And I pray, Lord, that we would, with hopefulness, conviction, and power, with truth and evidence, always be ready to even answer for the hope within us. In your powerful, precious name we pray. Amen.